we are going to continue through the book of Acts today, the book of Acts. Let me pray for us one more time and we'll get going here. Uh, King Jesus, yes, Lord, we're so grateful. We're so, we're so full this morning of your grace and your mercy. And Lord, now we ask once again for a special grace as we open up your scripture. God, as we open up your word. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, God. Help us to see, Lord, maybe something we've never seen before. That you would speak to our hearts. That you would convict us of any sin, God, that's, that's dwelling there. That you would uh, enliven us and awaken us, God, to the fullness of who you would have us to be as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that one home with you. That's our gift to you. So as we've been walking through the book of Acts this morning, uh, we've, been, we've, seen, we've uh, seen how Acts is the birth of the church of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, that the Holy Spirit has come to open our eyes to the truth and to the glory of Christ. Uh, and cause us to renounce our old selves, turn from our sin, all right, and, and follow him wherever he might lead us to go. Uh, a couple weeks ago, because uh, last week was Mother's Day, but a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, how Peter, in the first Christian sermon, right, preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, and we know that the Spirit was at work because 3,000 people got saved. And after this incredible event that kind of launched, if you will, the, the Christian church, right, after that first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, Luke goes on in the book of Acts to describe this newly birthed community of, of faith that summarizes what this earliest church looked like as a, as a community of believers of Jesus Christ. And if you've ever read this passage before in Acts 2, 42 through 47, it's this incredible picture of the church, and, and um, it almost seems too good to be true. And it's, it's not. It's not too good to be true. We really have the same Holy Spirit that they have, so we really can live out this community that we're going to talk about today. Um, but it's also true that um, the, even though it wasn't too good to be true, in some sense it was too good to last. Uh, in, this, in this sense that even the greatest communities will eventually face inner conflict and problems, which we will see a little bit later, even in, in this church here in the book of Acts. But nevertheless, we're going to see how this community lived in its earliest days this morning. And, and let it be our prayer that Hillside Baptist Church can be a place that experiences the fullness of the Holy Spirit in fellowship and community that we see here uh, on the pages of Scripture today. And this is what we're going to see um, in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, the fellowship of the saints, the fellowship of the saints. If you're able and willing, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food, their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord 
added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Word of God. You may be seated. Okay, so we're going to look at the fellowship of the, of the, of the saints um, uh, in five different uh, aspects. We're going to look at five different aspects this morning of the fellowship of the saints. We're going to see fellowship in the apostolic teaching, fellowship in the breaking of bread, fellowship in prayer, fellowship in generosity, and fellowship in growth from God. So five different aspects of fellowship from our passage this morning. Number one, we're going to talk about fellowship in the apostolic teaching. In verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching. So what, what does that mean? When this earliest Christian community is living out this, this kind of newfound faith, right? The, the newfound followers of Jesus. Like, how are they living? What are they devoting themselves to? And the first thing that it says is that they were devoted to the apostolic teaching. The apostolic teaching. The word devoted there means to continue steadfastly in or persevere in. In other words, they persisted in the teaching. They stayed in the teaching. They held to the teaching continuously without wavering. All right? it's, it, they clung to it. All right? um, and so it's, it's no accident that this occurs first in the list, right? that the apostolic teaching is mentioned first in what they uh, uh, clung to because it is the apostolic teaching that created the church. It's the apostolic teaching that created the church, right? Uh, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, right, he said, let there be light, and then there was light, right? Well, when Peter preached the gospel on that first uh, uh, Pentecost uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, when that happened, it was like God was saying, let there be the church. <laughs> and, and when he did, uh, the, the church was born, right? The 3,000 people got saved because the Holy Spirit came and, and opened their eyes to see and convicted them of their sin, of their crucifixion of Christ, and granted them repentance, that leads to life. Let there be the church, and there was the church. So the, the Word of God created the world, and the Word of God also created the church. And what we see here is that not only does the Word of God create the world and the church, the Word of God also sustains the church. The Word of God sustains the church. It wasn't just something that created them at the beginning. It's something that they held to, that they clung to, that they persevered in, in obedience to Jesus Christ. Now remember, right, that, that um, the... It says the, the apostolic teaching. So it was the teaching from the apostles that they were persevering in. Now, who were the apostles, right? We, we've talked about that before. The apostles were Jesus' designated leaders, right? The, the, initially the 12, and then a few others. Uh, the apostle Paul, for example, would come later. But it was the, the initial 12 apostles who did what? Who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, heard Jesus teach day in and day out for about three years, all right, so the apostolic teaching is what? It's Jesus' teaching, right? Because Jesus, the, the, the apostles are Jesus' appointed leaders, all right? So the apostolic teaching is Jesus' teaching. And so no, note here that, that, that it wasn't just 12 random men, all right? And, and, it, and it, wasn't that, uh, it wasn't that the church, you know, when it comes to religion especially, right, people just kind of think, well, you know, I, you know, it's just kind of like a hodgepodge. Whatever I want to believe, I can just kind of believe, and it's, you know, it's no big deal, right? And we think of religions as a bunch of group of people who just decided, hey, we're just going to believe this, all right? But notice here that for the church of Jesus Christ, it wasn't, um, hey, guys, what, what do you feel like we should believe as Christians? They, that's not what they did. They said, what did Jesus say? That's what we're going to believe. 
All right? It's the apostolic teaching that was handed down. It, it wasn't made up. It was handed down. Jesus gave it to the apostles, and the apostles are giving it to them, and it has been handed down all the way to us. And so that begs the question, right? Where is the apostolic teaching now? It's in the New Testament of the Bible. It's in the New Testament of the Bible, right? Because your New Testament in your Bible here were written down by who? By the apostles and by close associates of the apostles, right? That's who the New Testament was written down by, right? So it's not like they had something special that we don't. We have the same apostolic teaching that they had then, right? Um, Contained in the New Testament of our our Bibles, right? So for us to follow in the footsteps of the early church uh, is for us to be radically committed and devoted to the Scripture, right? That's why we read the Bibles. That's why I encourage you with all my heart to read your Bible every single day. We got reading plans in the back on the table back there. Grab one and read your Bible because when you read the Bible, God speaks. That's what happens, right? And when, you, and when we read the Bible, when we devote ourselves to Scripture, we're following the example that Jesus taught us to follow, right? By following his teaching as it's preserved in the, God, in the, in the Bible, the whole Bible and the New Testament in particular, right? And so as we're unwavering, unwaveringly and unyieldingly committed to the Scripture, that's where God works and that's where God shows up, right? We can't. We can't walk over here, all right, outside of the bounds of what Jesus taught and think that we're going to have Jesus' favor, right? That's not how it works. We stay within the bounds and, and faith and obedience to Jesus Christ and to his teaching, and that's where the Holy Spirit thrives, and that's where the Holy Spirit lives, right? And so that's the main thing when, when we talk about the apostolic teaching, right? It was given by Christ to the apostles. We don't toy with it. We submit to it. And submission to the true apostolic teaching is the basis of unity within the church, Right? They, the church, this early church, and we see this incredible picture of unity and sharing and life together, right? Well, they were able to do that because they were both devoted to the same body of teaching, right? They were both devoted to the same body of teaching. And so, in other words, truth, truth is the basis for unity of the church, right? And I just point that out to say that throughout the history of the church, and even throughout the history of Southern Baptists for that matter, right, there was times where some certain truths kind of, you know, became debated, and, uh, and some people say, well, you know, we should, just, we should just get along and it's no big deal. And there's a temptation, right? There's a temptation to say unity at the expense of truth. But there's just one serious problem with that. And that is that unity without truth is superficial. It's superficial, right? If, if, if we say we're together but we believe contrary things, we're not really together. Okay? And the late, great Southern Baptist Adrian Rogers once correctly said, it's better to be divided over truth than united in error. And so the truth matters, and the truth of Jesus Christ matters, but when we are all equally committed to the truth of the Scripture, we have this true radical unity in Jesus Christ together, and that's what we're seeing on the pages of Scripture, and that's the call for us today, to, be, to have fellowship in the apostolic teaching, number one. Number two, we see fellowship in the breaking of bread. We see fellowship in the breaking of bread. This is Baptist's favorite fellowship uh, method here, right? So the breaking of bread, right? They devote themselves to fellowship in the breaking of bread. So, so now if you look in verse 42 there, right, it says that they, they had the fellowship and then the breaking of bread and the prayer. So, so breaking of bread and the prayers probably describes the, the nature of the fellowship because the fellowship just means unity and, and sharing in in life and, and, and community together, all right? But the nature of that, uh, well, one of the aspects of the nature of that was the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And so scholars are actually divided about 
what Luke is referring to here. Some think that he's referring to just the fact that they, they ate together. They regularly ate meals together. Um, many others think that Luke is specifically referring to the, the Lord's Supper, right? The breaking of bread because Jesus said, uh, he, Jesus, it says that Jesus broke the bread at the Lord's Supper and said, this is my body given for you. And so some people think that he's referring to the Lord's Supper. Of course, there's always the possibility that it refers to both at the same time. And this may be the case because uh, most of the, er- you, know, you know, the earliest church, they didn't have buildings. You know that, right? They didn't have a sanctuary, a nice air-conditioned sanctuary to gather in. Did you know that? Right? The, if the church gathered, they gathered in the, in the temple courts or they gathered in the homes of private individuals, right? Probably some of the wealthier ones who had bigger homes, all right? And, and uh, it's also kind of, uh, it's hard to know what he's talking about because when the church took the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper was almost always taken as part of a larger meal that they ate together. And while that seems kind of strange to us, if you think about it, right, the first Lord's Supper was not eaten in the sanctuary but at the dinner table, right? The Last Supper, you've seen the old, you know, painting, famous Lord's Supper painting. They're sitting at a dinner table, all right? The first Lord's Supper was eaten at a dinner table because they were sharing a meal together, and Jesus took the Passover meal and transformed it wonderfully into the Lord's Supper, all right? Which is why, by the way, um, we are now taking the Lord's Supper once a month, and every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's going to be immediately followed by a fellowship meal in the, in, the, in the fellowship hall, right? Because this is our, our way to try to approximate the, the fellowship that this earliest church had together, that their taking of the Lord's Supper was a sign of their, it was a sign of their fellowship with Christ and a sign of their fellowship with one another as fellow believers in Christ, right? The Lord's table, the Lord's Supper is Jesus' gift for the church, right? So there's two ordinances. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper. But what's the difference between the two? Well, baptism admits someone into Christian fellowship, but the Lord's Supper is the continued and regular sign of our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Baptism admits someone into Christian fellowship, but the Lord's Supper is the continued and regular sign of our continued fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when a person is saved by God and they repent of their sins, all right, and turn to, to, to saving faith, uh, with saving faith to Jesus Christ, all right, that person is filled with the Holy Spirit, and baptism, the, the church, upon, uh, upon you know, uh, talking with them, making sure they have understood the gospel and really, as best as we can discern, repented of their sins, right? They are admitted into the church through baptism because baptism is that right where a person is dunked under the water saying your old self has died and new spiritual life has now been raised in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It's, a, it's an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality that God has worked into your heart. But once you are a Christian and once you have been baptized and you have entered into the fellowship of the saints, the Lord's Supper is then that regular sign that we partake together of saying we are the church of Christ. We are those who partake of the body and blood of Christ. We are those who have been forgiven of our sins by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this regular time of the Lord's Supper is the way that we remind ourselves of the fellowship we have with Christ and with one another. And it's a gift to the church to, to do that, to remember that, and to build unity within the church. So, so fellowship happened around the Lord's table and, just, and, and around the dinner table, and often at the same time. So yes, Baptists were right, eating can be spiritual, and, uh, but it can be unspiritual too, I suppose. But eating can be spiritual, uh, and it should be. 
inside and outside of Sundays. Uh, they, they devoted themselves to the fellowship of the saints, to the breaking of bread, right? And so let me encourage you as your pastor to intentionally seek spiritual fellowship with other people. And one of the best ways to do that is over a meal, right? So, you know, I mean, we all got busy schedules, but we're not that busy. Invite someone to lunch. Invite someone over to dinner, all right? Uh, plan some get-togethers and just have people over and just spend time with one another in Christian fellowship with one another. Spend time over meals together. Learn how people are doing. Build fellowship with one another. This is God's gift to the church, the fellowship of the saints and the breaking of bread. Number two. So we have fellowship in the apostolic teaching and the breaking of bread. Okay, next, in number three, we're going to see fellowship in prayer, right? It says in, in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship of to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, right? And the prayers. Um, so it actually, in the original language, it's plural, to the prayers. Uh, and because of this, some people think that they're referring to Jewish recited prayers because the Jews did have some prayers that they recited, you know, like uh, Catholics have like the Hail Marys and all, Our Fathers and that kind of stuff. Um, but most likely this refers to just all kinds of corporate prayer in general. In other words... A defining mark of the Christian community is that it's a praying community. A defining mark of the Christian community is that it's a praying community, right? We already saw what earlier, right? That before the Holy Spirit came, they were, they were in the upper room praying, right? And so they had already committed themselves to prayer because they knew that they needed the Holy Spirit to do what God had called them to do, all right? But now that the Spirit has come, and now that the Spirit has been poured out upon them, it's not like all of a sudden they're going to pray less, all right? Uh, if anything, they're going to pray more. They have the Holy Spirit, right? And so uh, the Spirit's going to stir them to pray even more because it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that they will boldly proclaim the gospel and that uh, the people will be saved. And so this, a call, this, of course, is a call for us to be uh, a praying church, right? To be a praying church, to be a praying people, to recognize that if anything of eternal value is going to happen, God has to be the one to do it. Right? And so we can work and we should work and we should work as hard as we can and, and sweat and labor to, to serve the Lord. But at the end of the day, right? Um, at the end of the day, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the Psalm say or is it a proverb? It says, um, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Unless the watchman guards the house, the watchman, uh, unless the Lord guards the house, the watchman watches in vain. Right? We can do all that we can do, but if God doesn't show up, we're just going to waste our time. That's why we pray. That's why we pray for God to act. That's why we pray for God to work uh, in, our, in our lives, in our church. Pray for our lost friends and family that need Jesus, and we want them to be in heaven with us. And so we pray for God to save them and convict them of their sins and bring them to salvation. Right? We pray for people's spiritual needs. We pray for people's physical needs. Uh, let, just let me give you an encouragement to prayer from, from the life of Hudson Taylor. And I may have shared this before, but Hudson Taylor... Uh, if you've never heard that name, he was a missionary in China for 51 years. Our second son is named after Hudson Taylor, in case you didn't know that. And, but part of Hudson's testimony is that in his teenage years, he became ill-tempered. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced an ill-tempered teenager, uh, but that's what happened to Hudson Taylor. And um, not you, Donovan, you, you would never do that. But, um, but, but an ill-tempered teenager and... Uh, and his father just got exasperated with him and just, just didn't know what to do, all right? But his mother, uh, Hudson's mother, Amelia, uh, understood Hudson in a way that his father James didn't, and so she 
just redoubled her efforts to be kind and gentle and patient towards him. And so she spoke to him and counseled him. But ultimately, uh, Hudson's mother, Amelia, became convinced and convicted by the Holy Spirit that the absolute best thing she could do for him is to pray for him. And so uh, one day, uh, she, took a, she took a holiday or a vacation, all right, away from her family. And as she was away from home, she felt compelled to increase the length and the earnestness of her prayers. And one day, while she was away, that compulsion grew in her to such a degree that she determined in her heart that she would pray to God and not stop until she felt a sense from the Holy Spirit that God was going to save her son. She just was convicted to do that. And so she just prayed and prayed that God would save her son. And then, all of a sudden, in the middle of her prayer, she just, she just got this sense that she believed that God had answered her prayer. And so in that moment, away from home, away from her family, she just begins thanking and praising God for the salvation of her son, right? Well, meanwhile, back at home, Hudson had been at the home, all right? And he was bored, and he was discontent, and, you know, they didn't have Netflix back then, okay? So, so he goes into his father's library, all right? He goes into his father's library and peruses the books and doesn't find anything interesting, and he comes across this little tract uh, titled Poor Richard. And he reads the story in this little tract, all right? And he comes, upon, he comes upon these words, the finished work of Christ, and the finished work of Christ. And when he reads those words in this little tract, all of a sudden, he understands that Christ did everything necessary for him to be saved, and all he needed to do was receive Christ's finished work by faith and trust in him. All right? And so literally in that moment, he fell on his knees and committed his life to Jesus and began praising God for his salvation, not realizing that miles away, his mother was doing the exact same thing. Prayer works. Prayer works. And so let's pray. Pray. Pray for your friends. Pray for your family. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for this community. Pray for our church. God hears prayer, and that's the mark of the Christian community. So fellowship in the apostolic teaching and the breaking of bread and prayer. Number four, we see fellowship in generosity. A fellowship in generosity. If you read this passage again, uh, Acts 2, 42-47, you'll see that um, a radical generosity is one of the most emphasized aspects of this passage. It says they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings uh, and distributing the proceeds to all. You know, and what's going on here? Now, you know, of course, you don't, I mean... And we live in a kind of like hyper-political age, and so it's not surprising there that some people have read that and have seen a basis for Christian socialism or even, even communism. I actually know a person who has argued with me that this passage teaches communism. But the point is, is that, that that's not what's happening at all, right? Because biblically speaking, right, generosity isn't generosity if it's governmentally coerced, right? Through high taxes or through redistribution of wealth. Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, and we know, uh, we know that he's not talking about the abolition of private property because a little bit later you have the account of Ananias and Sapphira, right, who do what? Who sell their property and, uh, and give it, part of it, to the church, right? Uh, but then uh, they acted like they gave all the amount when only they gave a partial amount and kept back some of it for themselves. So what was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira? Well, Peter tells them, 
He says, when you sold it, that still belonged to you. So he, he wasn't getting rid of private property. He said, when you sold it, that belonged to you. And when you gave it to the church, that, you, didn't, you didn't have to do that. And you, 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 you were fine to give as much or as little as you wanted. The, the problem wasn't the, the property. The problem was the fact that they wanted to look more generous than they actually were. That was the problem. And if you remember that story, God killed them. So there's that. All right? So, so but what's the point, right? The point is, is that in this passage, we see something even more radical and beautiful than, than, than uh, coerced generosity. What we see is a community. Now, hear me now. This is the important point. What we see is a community that is committed to the apostolic teaching. In other words, a church committed to the teaching of Jesus Christ who said what? Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? That's Matthew 6, 19-21. Right? This is the, that Jesus, Jesus was their leader, Jesus was their teacher, and Jesus taught them that. Right? In other words, that in other words if you're going to follow me, your value system, especially about money, has to flip-flop. Right? Because it's not about how big a barn you can build now. It's about how great a reward you can achieve then by, by serving the master's business with your work now. In other words, by being generous. By being generous. By, by prioritizing not earthly blessings, but spiritual ones. By prioritizing not our earthly kingdom, but our heavenly kingdom. All right? That's what was happening. That's what these people were doing. They saw, they saw, the earliest Christians saw these needs, and they said, that's a legitimate need, and at this moment in my life, I have more than I need, so I'm going to sell what I have that's above what I need so that I can meet this real need from other believers within my community, right? What is that? That's biblical generosity. That's obedience to Jesus Christ, who says, don't lay up treasures in heaven, on earth, but lay them up in heaven, right? That's what they were doing. They were they, they gladly, joyfully were generous with their goods. It wasn't coerced. It was a fruit of the Holy Spirit who worked into people's hearts, a freedom from the love of money so that it didn't have that grip. My goodness, how many people in this world are gripped by money? They're just, they're anxious over money. All right, you can have a lot of money and, and have a little money and still be anxious about money. It doesn't matter, Right? But it can grip our hearts. And Jesus just says, look, I feed the birds of the air. I clothe the lilies of the field. Just serve me and I'll take care of you. And that's what these people were doing. They just said, you know what? I'm just going to take what I have and just love people with it and love Jesus with it. And God's going to take care of me. And that's what they did. And we see this. And, and there's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind that that was part of the beauty of this community. That when those, those Jews uh, out there in Jerusalem saw how incredibly transformed this community was and how they were just radically generous with those within their community, they said, I don't know what happened to them, but that's the real deal. And I might need to look into this Jesus fella that they keep talking about. And so as we do that, and as we seek to store our treasure, not on earth but in heaven, God's blessing will pour out upon us in a similar way. So we see fellowship in the apostolic teaching, 
breaking of bread, prayer, generosity, and finally, we see fellowship and growth from God. Fellowship and growth from God. In verses 46 and 47 there, it says that day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, when the church acts like the church, people get saved. When the church acts like the church, people get saved. When we devote ourselves to God, when we devote ourselves to Scripture, when we devote ourselves to prayer, when we devote ourselves to uh, intimate fellowship, when we devote ourselves to generosity, God's going to show up because this is what Christ has commanded us to do as his people, right? If you look through the book of Acts, especially about prayer, for example, one of the consistent prayers of the saints in the book of Acts is prayer for boldness, to proclaim the gospel, right? So as we're praying about these things, as we're working through these things, as we're laboring through these things, God's going to work, right? God's going to work. And notice here, really the most important thing, it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. In other words, it's the Lord that adds to his church. The Lord adds to his church. That's why we pray. That's why I pray. That's why I pray today that somebody who maybe doesn't know Jesus will come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ today because that's not something that I do. That's something the Lord does. And the Lord could be doing it right now in somebody's heart, drawing you and convicting you and saying, hey, man, just, just surrender. Whatever it is that's keeping you from me, just surrender. The Lord can do that today because it's the Lord that adds to his church. Right? And as the church becomes the church, as the church acts like the church, the Lord adds to his church. Yes, Peter preached, and so we must preach too. But it's the Lord who saves. It's the Lord who adds to his number. And we pray that he would. And so what do we see this morning? We see fellowship in the apostolic teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer, uh, generosity, and fellowship in growth from the Lord. Um, I'm going to invite the uh, worship team to come back up. As I close this morning, I just want to extend this invitation. I just want to extend this invitation. This community was transformed by the, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, they encountered the risen Lord Jesus. The same Jesus who rose from the dead that we celebrated Easter not that long ago, the same Jesus that rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, well, that same Jesus, guess what? He's still alive today. And he's ruling and reigning from heaven. And, and, and he... He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. So that if we turn from our sins, he will wipe our slates clean, forgive us of all that sin, past, present, and future, bring us into his family, fill us with his Holy Spirit, change us, and empower us to do what we can't do on our own. That is live a life of faith and obedience for him. And maybe the Lord is drawing somebody this morning, and the Lord is speaking to your heart, and that's a decision that you need to make this morning. I pray with all my heart that the Lord would just enable you and empower you this morning to just surrender. Just say in your heart, Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I need you to forgive me and clean me, clean my mess. I guarantee he'll do it. No one who comes to me will I ever turn away, Jesus says. That's the invitation for you this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, there's none like you. And Lord, um, this community that we have, um, that we've talked about today, Lord, that community is not something that we can just uh, uh, manufacture on our own, God. That community 
is itself a gift from you, worked by the Holy Spirit. And God, I do pray, Lord, that you would bless Hillside with this kind of community. Lord, with a community that's radically devoted to the Scripture, radically devoted to prayer, radically devoted to the fellowship and the breaking of bread, getting in one another's lives, sharing the Lord's table together, celebrating that forgiveness in Christ together. God, God, uh, fellowship and generosity. And as a result of all of it, Lord, I pray that you would add to our number, God, day by day, with our friends, with our family members, who, Lord, our, our heart aches for because we want them to be in heaven. But we're not at all sure that they will be. God, we pray that you would draw these people to you. And maybe you're doing that, Lord. Maybe you're doing that right now. Maybe, maybe you're convicting someone of their sin right now, Lord, and tell them in their heart they need to surrender and they need to follow you. God, I pray that you would, you would grant them to do that this morning. We're going to sing a song of response, Lord, and let us just lay it all down for you as we worship you this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're